Hi, thanks for listening to WMNF Tampa. I'm Sean Canaan. Instead of Tuesday Cafe today, we bring you a recent episode of Life Elsewhere with Norman B. If you like the show, you can hear it on WMNF's HD3 channel, The Source, every Sunday at noon. This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Two very important books in this edition and two exceptional guests. Coming up later in the show, Professor of Global Conflict Studies at the University of Chicago, Christopher Blackman on his powerful new book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. First, the book is titled Seek and Hide, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy. Amy Guider is my guest. Amy, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I thought to myself as I started to read your book, this is such a huge topic, particularly here we are in 2022. Things have changed so much. And of course, when you get to your book and open it up, you go back in time, you go back in history. Can you just tell my listeners just very briefly about the beginning of your book? Because I think it is going to come really well from you, how you get into this story, because it is a story. Give us a little overview. Sure. Yeah. So uh, so one of the things that I, I found out was, um, and, and t- talking about sort of the structure of the book, uh, in my research, I found out that uh, Louis Brandeis, who eventually became a justice on the United States Supreme Court, uh, he had uh, handled and, and he'd handled um, an important privacy case on behalf of the publisher. So one of the very earliest privacy cases um, in the United States uh, that really focused in on how much a publisher can report about the, the truth regarding another person. So embarrassing private things, or at least the person believes uh, they, 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 were, they were private things. And so he handled this case. Um, on behalf of a, a book that had um, that had delved very deeply into uh, some community members on Cape Cod and their their family lives, and they were shocked to see themselves in this this best selling book. So he represents the publisher, and his argument is that um, in fact this is an invasion of privacy. But because the law doesn't recognize it yet, uh, therefore there's no possibility for the people who were outed in this book to bring any sort of lawsuit successfully. Right. Uh, and uh, and what's interesting about that is that just a few years. Uh, later, he would write a very important law review article called The Right to Privacy. In that article, he doesn't go all the way back. So he doesn't talk about that case from the 1880s. Uh, He doesn't talk about Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton and their privacy interests. Um, uh, And so that's the reason why I begin the book like I do, suggesting suggesting that, you know, it's very interesting that that he's there. He's such an important figure in the right to privacy in the United States. But a lot of people don't know what his you know, what his background was and um, and how even before Louis Brandeis started writing about privacy, there were privacy interests from the very, very, very beginning. You point this out in your books, like your own privacy and your own, how much information there is that you unwittingly, we all do, 
what's your take on how much information that we do unwittingly just there's out there and, and they in quotes have yeah so so it's it's actually quite interesting and i guess i have never had a social media account really and one of the reasons why was because very early on i was very worried about privacy i was studying privacy at the time i was very worried about it and therefore i never i never created a social media account because when we carry around our phones our phones can end up tracking us to different places um and when we search for things on our phones certainly we do the same thing on our our laptops or our desktops uh but but on our phones there's just so much information there and so the supreme court has suggested that our cell phones contain the privacies of life uh where we go who we meet with because when two phones come together it's possible to triangulate that and figure out who we're with where we are and the supreme court is very conscious of this and very worried about it one of the things that i thought was so interesting i i made um a request for a, a background check so i had a private detective do a background check on me he came up with 200 pages of data even though i think i live a very very uninteresting life came up with 200 pages of data and and yet the i think the more interesting uh revelation was when i asked for my data from experian and from amazon experian for example suggests that i am i'm pretty sure this is right but that i'm a, a fast food eater and this is not true and i was i was thinking like how how might they figure that out and i still don't know one of my thoughts is well if i'm at fast food restaurants with my husband for example maybe they're putting me in that category they also put me in a women's luxe clothing um purchaser category and all of that is not because of public information all of that is because of the way i interact with my phone the way i interact um with with the internet so there's an awful lot of data about each of us um out there you could make that same request that i did from yeah. um, from experian or from amazon amazon knows for example that i have a an english or a bulldog uh and and that was somewhat surprising so deep in this um in these data files that they sent to me was one labeled pets uh and it literally said that I have a bulldog which I do yes and one other thing that you point out Amy which I think is so important is that in that list of information that you got it also gives you people associated with you not just family but neighbors and friends and that's where it starts to get very very scary that's right and and one of the reasons why i think that these exist is because it used to be that private detectives would be hired by companies to go out and search for individuals you know maybe they owed money on yeah. uh, you know something like this and so these private detectives have this information uh when there's a background check done on someone like was done on me it literally will um it will tell those private detectives who lives around me what their criminal histories are who i sold my house to uh what they owe on their house who i gave my car to a charity who now owns that car the license plate information so there's an awful lot of information about all of us out there that then is given out 
on as part of another person's um, uh, investigative report in that way. So, yes. so you're right. We're all sort of commingled in that sense. Even so, if you live beside someone who has um, one of these um, uh, private detective um, reports uh, done, that person will um, will be revealed as well. Amy Guider is my guest. Seek and Hide is the title of the book. The subtitle, The Tangled History of the Rights of Privacy. is such a good read. So I was sitting in a bar just having a, a cocktail on my own one evening. This is a couple of years ago. And I got talking to a young lady sitting next to me. And we got talking about dating. Not that we were, I mean, it wasn't that sort of conversation. We just were talking about dating. And she said that if she is going to go on a date with someone, the very first thing she does is she does a search on them. And I was like, you do what? I was kind of, I've got to say, this was, as I said, a couple of years ago. I think it's more commonplace now, isn't it? In fact, it's almost like de rigueur. If you're going to go on a date with somebody, you do a background search. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I would I would say my guess is that all of my students do that. Uh, there's information that's out there online available about um, about anyone, and some of that information can be very relevant. So, for yeah. example, if someone has had a bankruptcy or someone has um, been particularly litigious, or that someone has been um, charged with a, a crime. Um, uh, and and faced um, you know faced a jury, but but uh, but those sorts of things can also be very damaging. Uh, so so if one is arrested, for example, and there are some websites out there that will publish mugshots of people uh, without regard to news value, uh, if that person is arrested and then later the charges are dropped, they arrested the wrong person, for example, that mugshot lives online forever. And so a person who might actually, um, who would have ended up in a very happy relationship with the person who was arrested, uh, then will see that that mugshot, think very poorly of this person who just happened to be arrested wrongly and decide not to date the person. And 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 that's what I think is so interesting um, today, uh, especially with regard to criminal histories like that. Those websites that exist literally to publish mugshots that can alter people's lives because employers certainly do the same thing. Uh, and and those mugshots are out there for up forever and courts have started to take notice. So have state legislatures. Uh, and so uh, and so there have been some courts that that have suggested that that sort of information is no longer newsworthy after a certain number of years, for example, even if even if the person uh, was convicted, other uh, legislatures um, have passed laws making it um making it then uh, um, wrong for police to release mugshots of people who are arrested for uh, misdemeanors, for example. So there's this real push both in terms of removing the information from the internet, but then also not making it accessible in the the first place. And I'm a former journalist. I mean, I understand the way we used to have access to these mugshots, but we would also only use them when they were newsworthy. So when the crime was particularly heinous or police were looking for an individual, now there are websites that 
as I suggest, literally exist to publish these mugshots. And so you see the law turning against what was public information and deciding to, you know, roll things back a little bit. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's such a fascinating read. You, I, I love the way that you've put this book together because you interweave lots of different stories into the story. And one of the things that, that came to my mind as I'm, as I'm reading your book is that what we take for granted and what, we, what we've changed, I think like I've changed my mind about what is the right to privacy. And I want to focus on that phrase, the right to privacy. It's such an important set of words, isn't it? Can you talk about how that came about, just how we, we, we understand it or maybe misunderstand the right to privacy? Sure. So, so one of the biggest misunderstandings, I think, and, and a big reason why I wrote this book was because as, as someone who studied privacy for, for decades now, uh, I'm, I'm always or was always surprised to have people come up to me and say, oh, we don't have any privacy anymore because of what's happening on, on the Internet. Uh, and and that's just wrong. And so that's a misconception. Certainly today, courts and legislatures are really attempting to grab hold of information and protecting it on privacy grounds. We the words the word privacy uh, really began not as a word, uh, but back at the very beginning of the United States when we had something that was called truthful libel, uh, yeah. and what that meant was that. Even if the information were truthful, it could be so painful for a person and that person's reputation that truth was no defense, that truth would actually make the information that was revealed even worse. So we move from that into the 1870s uh, when judges started writing about the need for the right to be let alone. And if there's one definition for the right to privacy, it's I would say that that courts and legislatures somewhat routinely fall back on that idea, the right to be let alone, the right for us to go about our lives and uh, live it without others looking in on us, unless it's absolutely necessary. Rules about the government are different, but not to be invaded by technological advancements that might record us, for example, um, without our knowledge, uh, that might take images of us without um, without our knowledge. So this right to be let alone uh, is, is often the way we define it. And it's often defined in the context of technology that can actually invade invade lives when we don't expect it and don't yes. know it. Yes. So then, Amy, we have the the topic of CCTV, closed circuit television. And those cameras are everywhere these days, and they've been very useful in solving a lot of crimes, of course. But as you talk about in your book, they can also observe people doing things that it's maybe a, a little sort of intimate that you don't necessarily want anybody else to know about or to see. What's the takeaway from that when we've got CCTV everywhere? I think that a court would suggest that CCTV is different from the, the sorts of doorbells, video doorbells, for example. With CCTV, if it's, the, if it's a government-operated uh, video, for example, a government-operated camera, 
we can be pretty sure that the government, we hope, is not going to just publish that online for anyone to see. Um, you know, if, if, um, if people are kissing in public or even more, you know, the government has no interest in, in revealing that sort of information. What's interesting today, I think, is that so many of us have, have doorbells that instantly start recording audio and video when people walk by. Uh, and so there was um, there was such a thing here in uh, New Orleans. Um, there was a, a website run by uh, people who live next door to a bar. And what they would do is they would use these cameras, the video that they captured of people kissing, going to the bathroom outside the bar, other, um, other such behavior, uh, and post that online. And, and that's just nothing, that's not something the government would be interested in. And, and it's an example, I think, of, of why my prediction is um, soon enough, and you see this in some cases right now, when we're in the dark, we have greater privacy than we do during the day. And that most people, my guess is, again, that's, that's thinking about my, my students and their responses to, um, to this technology. Most people don't understand that these ring doorbells can capture that sort of video, can capture audio as well, and instantly start recording when people walk by or can be set up to do that. Uh, and so I think it's just a matter of time before courts suggest, hey, you can't use that sort of technology, especially in the dark, when people think that they're cloaked with privacy in a sense, even though they're outside. The book is titled Seek and Hide the Tangled History of the Right to Privacy. Amy Guider is my guest. For you, for Amy, was there, was there a big takeaway for you that you had not thought about, not, not really understood before you set about writing Seek and Hide? I guess for me, one of the things that was most interesting, and because I teach this, so this is something I teach in, in the law school here at Tulane, um, you know, it wasn't really surprising, but it's certainly something that has been percolating uh, very recently. And that's this notion of a right to be forgotten. That's <sighs> the notion of courts really suggesting that, that, you know, maybe information that's online should one day be protected and should be one day uh, be made private again, even though it was once public. That's a really interesting thing. It's a place, I think, where courts are going, and there's an awful lot of law that exists to support it, uh, even, from, um, even from the early days. Uh, and so if there's, if there's one, I mean, I'm very interested in, in the whole question of mugshots. I'm very interested in um, privacy in public, I'm, 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 and I'm super interested in uh, this right to be forgotten and how how I predict that uh, that we'll have some sort of right like that uh, soon if we don't yes. have it already. Yes. You know, one takeaway for me that's, uh, that led me to start thinking about how much we've gotten used to, in quotes, our right to privacy or not, as the case may be. And, and, and as just in, in my lifetime, how things have changed. Well, I know for myself, I'm kind of careful when I fill in forms or when I, you know, I apply for something or whatever. I try to be judicious. Am I alone in that? I, I get the feeling that not everybody is, is as careful as I am. Well, one of the reasons why, again, one of the reasons why I'm writing this book, too, is to explain to people 
why they should be more careful when they fill out forms, why they should um, care about those cookie questions that pop up uh, so frequently today, why they should take the time to go in and make sure that um, that the the uh, more nefarious types of cookies are not tracking them uh, across the internet. Uh, and, and I think that that's one of the most important things to sort of get the word out about how much stuff is out there about us. Because I, I believe that the more people come to understand precisely what's available, the more they will put pressure on their legislators and members of Congress to make change. Uh, and, and that change is possible now because you do have so many courts coming in, uh, stepping in to make things better in ways that legislatures have not. So I think getting the word out just generally about the sorts of things that people um, should be caring about and the reasons why, like you're doing today, thank you, is, um, is just crucially, uh, crucially important. Yes. We could go on for a long time here talking about this. It's a, it's such a fascinating subject and you've really, you've managed in your book to cover so many facets and I, I, I just thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. I got a, just a little note about the cover. If you, if anybody gets the book and I hope that they do and look at the cover carefully, there's a zipper that runs across the cover and it's sort of, it kind of like it illustrates exactly what we're talking about here. Thoroughly good book. Thank you for writing it. And you're a lovely guest. I really enjoy talking with you. Amy Guider is my guest. Seek and Hide is the book, the subtitle, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy or Privacy. Amy, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you. You're listening to a special presentation of Life Elsewhere with Norman B. If you like the show, you can hear it on WMNF's HD3 channel, The Source, every Sunday at noon. To learn more about the books we feature on Life Elsewhere, go to lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Next up, I'll delve into the important question, why we fight, with professor and author, Christopher Blackman. This is Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. We would like to know what you think of our program. Send your comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. The title of the book is Why We Fight. The subtitle, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. The author, Christopher Blackman. Christopher, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thank you. Thoroughly enjoyed reading this book, but I'm going to tell you straight up front, this is the most alarming book that I've read in such a long time. Alarming in that you contradict every notion that I thought I may have had about why we fight. You you turn it upside down, you turn it on its head, and, and, and you explain it so incredibly well. I'm curious to know right up front whether you knew that this was going to be a controversial idea, uh, and I and I want to get into this in, in, in deeper. Did you did you know that? You know, I spent two decades working in conflicted places: West Africa, East Africa, Colombia. Here, I meet village leaders, gang leaders, mafia leaders, world leaders who don't know just how much I think we we know about why we fight and how to stop it. 
it's the kind of thing that I, there's decades of work out there by brilliant scholars and practitioners where I think this message is not that controversial. The, the fact that a lot of the time we don't fight and, and when we do, it's for particular reasons. And so yeah. it's like this secret that no one's really letting anyone in on. And and so I, I wanted to let people in on the secret, but I hope rather than seeing it as controversial, they sort of see it as a welcome insight. Yes, and that's the beauty of this book and how you've put it together is that we almost that we take fighting and war for granted and really don't stop to think about it. You really made me think. And, and you give us a lot of history uh, mm-hmm. and you give us a lot of a different... As you said just now, gangs and mafia and, and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, I just want to quote something from your book, and then we can go into this. This is on page 41, and you say, if we're going to take the theory behind this book seriously, then shouldn't the 13 colonies and Britain have also sought out a bargain without a fight? Mm-hmm. That is so incredibly important because... I think I'm not alone in this, thinking that the whole idea of of the 13 colonies fighting the UK was kind of like, oh, yeah, well, that's history. I didn't really... Of course it was going to happen, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but, you know, I grew up in Canada before becoming an American, and and Ah. there was no war of independence. And I've worked in Kenya and Ghana, and actually there's a little bit of a fight in Kenya, but mostly the British said, okay, you can go. And, And so most... Britain had a very peaceful decolonization process in most of the world. That's not to say what followed that pretty rapid decolonization wasn't some instability, but but that's really, I mean, the American Revolution is a good example of, of war being the exception, not the rule. Right, exactly. You you explain what you mean by war or what you mean by fighting. Right, well, because- I, I, I sort of said, listen, let's just talk about prolonged fighting between groups. Yes. And, which is a much more inclusive definition, a broad definition than maybe a lot of books about this. And, and, and that was intentional. I didn't want to talk about individual violence, so I throw that out. And I, I wanted us to think about short episodes of violence differently, and maybe we'll come to that later. But yes. otherwise, I didn't want us just to think about nations and states. And I just didn't even want us to think about just political factions. I wanted us to recognize that there's some really, there's conflict between gangs and ethnic groups and villages and religions that are to some degree governed by the same principles. And we can learn more about the whole by learning about, but we can learn about all of them by learning about what they have in common. Yes, yes. I, I and, and it's so important that you have that in the book and you explain it so incredibly well. The next thing that I've got to let my listeners know about are the five the five reasons we fight. Can you just give us an overview of that? Because I think, again, it's so important. Sure. So, you know, we have to start with the fact that the reason most of the time we don't fight is because war is just so incredibly costly, right? And so groups are striving to avoid it. And and so, you know, let's think about what's going on. That seems like a strange thing in this world right now to say, but actually Putin tried for 20 years, every other scheme possible, assassinations, dark money, propaganda, separatist support, but war, right? It was his very last option. And so he too is striving not to fight and it's because war is costly. And so number one, if you, if, if you remember nothing else, it's the fact that war happens because something led one society or one leader to ignore those costs. And you're yes. right. I say it only happens in five ways, but but more importantly, it's 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 what they all have in common is we're ignoring the costs of war that, that that lead so many to avoid it. 
Yes. And then when we, as you, as you explain in the book, when we talk about war, we're not necessarily talking about nations, etc. One example that you give, you give so many great examples, but is Bill Burford's investigation of soccer hooliganism in, in the UK. Yeah. Coming from the UK, of course, I, I know a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, never been involved in soccer <laughs> as a soccer hooligan or being, I mean, it's this scary stuff. But talk to me. Christopher, about that, because as alarming as it is, you explain it so incredibly well. Well, I wanted to explain that as something, I was using that as an example of what I didn't want to talk about in the book, which is this individual violence, because what Buford described is something, you know, we could think of it in a whole bunch of contexts in the U.S. as well, but, but a group of men getting together and basically just engaging in mayhem for the fun of it. And I mostly wanted to acknowledge this is true. Right. But I wanted yep. to sort of say that this is actually the exception rather than the rule. And also, it's not what we're talking. That's not what drives national violence. So I tell the story because we don't want to ignore individual passions, but I mostly tell it in order for us to focus on this prolonged conflicts between groups and, and, and to actually say those individual passions are actually not so important uh, and they're not one of the five. You just touched on just a couple of moments ago about Putin. And of course, I'd, mm. I'd be remiss if I didn't just angle off and talk about the, the fact that this book came out at a time when this horrible situation is going on in Ukraine. But having said that, I was thinking to myself, as Christopher was writing this book, I wonder if he did think that there would be, a, because there's always things going on around the world, yeah. but, but possibly nothing quite so close at close to home as in we're so involved we're so aware and and it's being it's on the news constantly uh did that come into your thinking when you when you were writing the book about the prospects of of a, of a, of a major conflict happening as the book was happening i thought you know i thought it was unlikely in part because war is always unlikely yeah I, I guess if i'd had to pick a great power conflict that i thought was more likely than another it might be a grab for taiwan not a grab for ukraine <sighs> Yes. Uh, but, um, but you know, we, you know, just to talk, I mean, we could, talk, I mean, one way to, maybe I could even just frame the five in the context of this, just because, yeah. you know, it, it, it's helpful to sort of think of it as times when leaders ignore costs, but it helps to make it a little bit more concrete. So let's think about what went on. Number one reason leaders might ignore the costs is they're unchecked. And so think like, like Putin. Putin is an autocrat. He's a personalized dictator. And so he's not really accountable for the costs that most of his people and soldiers bear. And so he can ignore that. So he's too ready to use violence. Number two, uh, something I call intangible incentives or ideological incentives, right? It's something that Putin gains that, uh, in this case, his nationalist ambitions, his desires for personal glory and a, and, 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 and a place in history that lead him to go to war despite the costs, right? It's a, yes. it's a price he's willing to pay for this ethereal ideological thing that he gains. Number, number three is uncertainty. Uh, you know, we tend to under, we tend to like forget just how uncertain some of these things were two or three months ago, how strong the Ukrainians would be, how uh, strong the, the Russian military might be, how unified the West would be in sanctions. Um, and so, so, so Putin had to make a, a gamble, essentially, on what he thought was the most likely of those outcomes. And I don't think anybody would say that what happened in the end was, was the likely scenario. And even in a Western military expert's 
opinion. Yes. Uh, number four is misperceptions, all right? And so amidst this uncertainty, we can also be biased in how we look at the world. And and so when you hear people say Putin's isolated, he is not getting good information, and he is making mistakes, he's overconfident, he's underestimating the costs, these are all misperceptions amidst the uncertainty, right? This is where it's a little bit irrational, where it's a, a bit of a failure, right? And And so that's the fourth. And then the fifth is what strategists would call a commitment problem. And it's when you can't trust your adversary to commit to a deal. And and you want to lock in your current advantage because you're worried about what will happen. And and arguably that's that's at play here where Ukraine was acquiring Turkish drones. They were uh they were building these Neptune missiles, which we've sort of seen in action recently. They maybe they would acquire long range missiles and so they they would get harder and harder to invade over time and there was a little they could commit not to do that and more importantly they're getting more democratic over time which is a dangerous example to all of the dissidents and russians who might like to see putin gone and they couldn't roll that back they couldn't commit to get rid of that and so arguably russia in early 22 2022 was at its peak leverage with ukraine and it was just going to get worse from there so they had to lock in their advantage and so it's this combination of sort of strategic and psychological factors that I think help us understand why he was ignoring these costs or overlooking them and willing to, and willing maybe even to pay that price. Yes. And of course, the outcome now, we we don't know. And I'm not going to ask you to look into your crystal ball because I think it's, right. it's so, it's that's a whole nother, we could go way off on a tangent there. I'd like to go back and, and dig into the book because you give us a lot of stories from the past and, and mm-hmm. you, 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 your history lessons in the book, again, made me sort of sit up somewhat and, and, and rethink a lot of the things that I thought that I knew. Henry VIII, I just mm-hmm. want to pick on Henry VIII because you sure. paint this almost glamorous picture of the man, particularly as a, as a young man, mm-hmm. as, you, as you say, a broad-shouldered, lean but his ego is, was was huge, and this seems to be a kind of reoccurring theme with men in power. Yeah. Can you talk about that, Christopher? To me, this is that intersection of unchecked power with what I call these intangible incentives, including personal glory, right? So if a highly checked and balanced president or king is it seeks glory, well, good luck to them, because they're going to get thwarted at every turn. Uh, it's when you mix these intangible like incentives with unchecked power that things get dangerous. And, you know, I think it's easy to exaggerate how important the pursuit of glory is by national leaders is and driving war. It's a little bit. I think that that period in European history and, and, and monarchs like Henry VIII in, in, in particular are really iconic examples of, of, sort of unchecked leaders run amok. If you're just joining us, I want to let you know that I'm talking to Christopher Blackman. His book is titled Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. You give us so many different little insights in, into conflicts. Uh, I, and I think I think I've got this right. It's El Salvador in a mm-hmm. prison in El Salvador. And you talk about how they settle conflicts. Right. And, and, it, and it's just fascinating stuff. Can you explain to my listeners? Sure. And so this is actually, you know, I do talk about El Salvador in the book, and this particular story is from Medellin, Colombia, which is where I spent a lot of my time. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, the book kind of opens up with with this experience. So I've been studying how these armed groups and these mafias and these gangs work in that city for the last six years. And I started doing that because 
this is a this is a city that has 400 really well organized street gangs and almost you know, 17 18 really powerful mafia like organizations and yet the homicide rate is maybe a third of what it is here in in a big american city including my home of chicago and so what was going on and so some colleagues and i including some colleagues from Medellin, we, we began trying to study this and it took us a long time to figure out how to talk to leaders, but we, we actually would meet them in prison. And one of them told us a story of, of uh, two rival gangs in his cell block who, who were playing billiards and, and, they, uh, and, and a fight broke out and they pulled out their guns and one side shot the other. And why they have guns in prison would be a whole other podcast. Uh, but they, um, you know, that started the cycle of revenge killings. Uh, but that was it, because nobody had an interest in war. And in particular, those big higher-level mafias were like, you know what, guys? We're your wholesalers. Yes. We, we're we not going to make any money in the middle of a gunfight. And by the way, when you guys start going to war, we lose the invisibility that is our shield. And so we're going to, if you're unchecked because you're not considering the cost, we'll provide you some checks. Are you seeking vengeance and intangible incentive? Well, guess what? I'll give you a counter incentive. Are you making mistakes? You have misperceptions? I'll also, if necessary, at the point of a gun, force you to reconsider your your choices. Uh, And I'll give you a bargaining table called La Mesa or La Oficina, the office, to to reduce that uncertainty. And I will provide commitment to deals so you won't have commitment problems. And so these... These mafia-like organizations are basically like the UN Security Council of Medellin. They're not; they're unequal and only partly effective, just like the UN Security Council. But uh, but they, at least some of the time, they manage to keep Medellin quite peaceful. Let's focus in for a moment on something which uh, I, 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 comes up a lot in the book, and that is power. And, and greed and riches and, and, and money and, and wealth. It's an obvious thing, I suppose, in some respects. It's an ongoing theme, except it isn't because you say to yourself, or I say to myself, you know, using Putin for an example, I mean, what, what use is this? What does this do? Mm-hmm. But, but let's talk about the, that sort of juxtaposition of money and wealth as, a, as opposed to people going to war and, and, and fighting. Yeah. I mean, he's a good example where I think there are ideological goals he has in mind about the glory of the Soviet Union, about the Ukrainian identity not really existing. So he wants a greater glory for his ethno-linguistic group. Um, At the same time, I think there's also something very strategic. So Russians identify with Ukrainians maybe more than any other people on the planet. Uh, And... And having two democratic revolutions in the last 20 years win that group right on your doorstep is, I think, from Putin's perspective, a really dangerous example for dissidents and ordinary Russians to have. And he's wanted to crush that at every turn for 20 years using all means possible and, if necessary, invasion. Now, why is that? I mean, democracy isn't going to... That doesn't endanger the average Russian. He wasn't taking his group to war. This was his private incentive. It threatened his apparatus of control so i think now some of that is money and wealth right but it it's that apparatus of control and his it's a lot of it's it, he gets a lot of benefits from that and and i think and only some of it is is money and wealth but i do think it's very material and so that you, you can you can get a far you can get pretty far with both these ideological and these like material strategic goals that you know he needs to preserve his own skin 
I want to compliment you on on something that you do in your book, and that is the writing style and 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 the way you make it so easy to follow. Something else that you do in the book is that you give us pie charts, <laughs> and that all sounds so very academic, but you explain it very well. But talk to me, Christopher, about the decision to, to go in that direction, to put pie charts in and to put the maps and, and just the graphs in the book because it works yeah. so incredibly well. You know, of those five, three are really, when I say they're strategic, that's just code for game theory. Yeah. Uh, so unchecked leaders is, is, is a game theoretic insight that, you know, people can't hold their leader accountable. The uncertainty story I told and the commitment problem story I told are both game theoretic or strategic. And uh, they're subtle concepts sometimes, and I, I wanted to make them really clear to people because I think, listen, everyone can get that because everyone who's played poker actually gets the strategic logic. They know it intuitively, right? That I, I don't know my opponent's hand. Sometimes I might call or bluff, and I'm always worried that my opponent's bluffing, right? So they can get it, but I just want to lay it out clearly for the reader. And so it was my attempt to sort of give the most basic introduction to these insights that most people intuitively understand in a, in a common way across all the chapters. And uh, it took me a long time to find something, I think, that worked for people, but I'm, I'm glad that it seems to have you know, worked for yeah. you. Yes, no, it worked for me, and I think it's going to work for everybody that reads the book, and I hope a lot of people do. Why We Fight is the title, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Christopher Blackman is my guest. A lot of research went into this book. You... you obviously know your subjects and, and you spend, I, I can imagine, just so many hours. How long did it take to, to write the book? I started in 2017. So I spent okay. about four or five years. Uh, I mean, partly it was based on things I spent my whole career studying, including my yeah. own work and experience. And then I kind of set myself the objective of just reading everything and trying yes. to make it, you know, it's a, I'm not trying to say believe this book and don't believe others. My theory of war is right. I'm, this is actually a way to organize all the theories out there. Not to say this is right or wrong, just yes. to help people make sense of the chaos and realize that there's just sort of five kinds of stories out there. And you don't have to yes. believe my interpretation of the Iraq War or the American Revolution, but you can at least now sort of make sense of what how person you know one person's explanation is different than another by just sort of seeing them emphasize different versions of these five which i hope is just clarifying for people i'm so glad that you said that because that is one of the big takeaways for me from your book is that you do explain what you're talking about but you're not beating me over the head saying i am right and you've got to listen to what i'm saying you give me a choice you 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 touch on the american revolution and for instance I didn't really see it the same way that you tell me about it. Mm -hmm. I guess I thought I understood, you know, I guess I thought I understood about the Iraq war. I know that mm -hmm. I, I know that my views about that were probably a little out of the mainstream. I mean, I just could not understand, for instance, why in the world will we going into Iraq? I mean, but that, that's, you know, we go. You explain these things with your pie charts and with, with the maps. You, you do it so incredibly well. And it's not like you're just kind of pandering to my sort of limited brain. It's like you, 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 you make me think about it a lot more. And I really appreciate that. I think that's, that's such a great skill to have to be able to put that across. And you did it so well in the book. Well, thank you. You know, I, 
you know, in, and sometimes in academia, you hear things like you have to dumb things down for the reader. And, yeah. you know, when I, my editors, my agents, what I heard every step of the way from people in the book industry, just how much respect they actually have for readers. And they, they said, that's nonsense. You can get across complexity and, and nuance. People can, you just have to do it clearly and logically yes. and try to do it through stories. And so yeah. I think that's why it took several years. I could have written a this book quickly in some sense, but I think I wanted to do that. And I think they're absolutely right. I think any of us can get these, these things. Was there a point, and this is one of those areas I'm so fascinated by, was there a point for you, Christopher, as you, as you're putting the book together, you know where you want to go. Yeah. But at some point you go, Oh my God, this is so daunting. Oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> will I ever, will I ever get to the end of this book? I, did you ever get to that point? I believe that was called 7am every day. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Putting the book together and, 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 and when you got to the point where you go, okay, it's done. You take it to your editors. Oh, mm -hmm. that's a question I really wanted to ask because a book like this, how much do you need an editor to help you? And how much do you kind of edit yourself as you go along? You know, what was so helpful was helping sort of how to put it all together, structure it. And so not the nitty gritty, but just how to overall structure the argument and, and be a sounding board. That was, I think that's, that was an amazing role that these agents and editors played for me. Um, and then the other thing I'm lucky to have as an academic is what you do is you get a bunch of other academics, like 20 of them, and they and they sat down and they read it. And then they you spend like eight hours together and they pound it to shreds. And then you slowly over the next three months try to fix all of the mistakes they found. And and I think that kind of due diligence was was tough, but but great. And so I benefited from like a lot of help in that respect. Yes. I've been carrying this book with me and, and uh, uh, people have asked me what's it about and mm. giving their opinions before they've before they've read it. And my big takeaway, of course, is is that why we fight because we can. I think Am that's I right? right. I mean, with the with like the caveat that most of the time we don't want to. Right. Right. Yeah. And because we have this powerful incentive that's just we're so ruined. We're seeing that right now. Not even not even if Shirley Putin even has to regret this at this point, right? And that's the point. So we can, but we can because something led us to ignore that misery and destruction, at least for a moment. Yes. Is there and, and I'm basing this on talking to anthropologists over a period of time, and is there a thought about male to female, female to male, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, is there a difference in how we react to the idea of fighting? So we know males are more aggressive on an individual level. And we know most soldiers are male and most leaders that go to war are male. Um, and I talk about that a little bit towards the end of the book, but I say, you know what, like that, that's not the most important role that say, gender plays in this whole thing because yes. a lot of that gets filtered out in institutions and bureaucracies and decisions right so maybe that would make a decision maybe that would affect an individual leader somewhat but you know, in year four of that war it's not the maleness that's keeping it going there's some fundamental things there yes. um what what something like what i point out is i says why is why are bringing more women into power and why does more female representation actually make us more pacific it's not because women are that different than men although that might be part of it it's mostly because if you leave half of the population out of the decision that's an unchecked interest 
Yes. Right there. You don't have to. Then you can if you're a leader and only half the population can vote. And I don't care if it's women or a particular ethnic group or whatever. Then you're going to ignore a lot of the costs and suffering that they would bear. And you're going to be too quick to go to war. And so what I think universal enfranchisement does is it makes our leaders more checked and balanced. And that fundamentally is maybe the first and most powerful driver of, of, of what's pacifying them. Another takeaway from the book for me is that, and you give so many examples, historical examples, is that in so many respects, nothing has changed. As, as we have matured as a civilization, our attitudes towards fighting is pretty much are the same as they were right at the very beginning. Things haven't changed, or have they? Well, I would say there are a set of ideas we have um, I think people like Michael Ignatieff and Steven Pinker have called this like the human rights revolution or the humanitarian revolution, where some stranger on the other side of the planet is also a human being to me and they have rights worthy of respect. And I and that idea didn't really exist more than a few hundred years ago. And when that happens, you know, the whole game I told you about where I say, I, or the whole idea that I don't fight because it's costly is only because of my own costs. That's all I need to predict that you're going to prefer peace is that war is costly to me so i don't want to fight war is costly to you you don't want to fight we don't care about one another but if you care about me even a little bit or i care about you even a little bit as a human being or as a trade partner and as a friend then your pain is going to be a little bit of suffering to me that's going to add to the cost of war and so that's the insulation we need any ideology we have that makes you worthy of human empathy as, as my enemy makes me less likely to go to war against you because it makes war more costly. And, and I do think that's what's changed. What's one of the, that's maybe one of the big things in the book that I talk about that's changed over the last yes. few decades or centuries. And now talking about change, another thing, after reading the book, I, it, it led me to ask the question, where does technology come into this mm -hmm. in regards to our attitude to fighting? So it comes in a couple ways. Probably the big one is that it basically a lot of our technology is just made more and more destructive mm. it's not always true sometimes it gives us more targeted war but i think really what it what it does is it's an opportunity uh it's it's it is it, it, technology makes war more destructive in some ways it it increases our incentives for peace right and and the nuclear bomb is the perfect example of this um and the second way to think about technology is it's just a way of arming, right? There's lots of investments we can make as a society to get some leverage over our opponent to get a bigger slice of that pie mm. in terms of those pie charts, right? Because that's what it's all about in this intergroup competition. And so investing in technology is just a way for me to get leverage over you and get a better deal. And so it's not a solution and it's not necessarily a cause of war. It's just the thing we do to increase our power vis-a-vis -vis some other group. Yes, Going back to this this notion, well, not even a notion, but the theory is that we don't fight because we don't really want to, mm -hmm. comes back for me, and I'm thinking about the the fact that the United States, and I can't remember the exact values now, but I, I, it's something crazy, like the United States spends 70 times more than the rest of the world on, on military, or something something ludicrous like that. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking to myself, this is a nutty kind of situation. This is a crazy situation that America could quite easily, I would have thought, take out whoever they want at any time. 
just like that. So why do we? And I'm just asking this into the. <laughs> why why do we? Why do we have these boogeymen um, in in well North Korea, for instance? Why do we even even bother having this kind of you know discussion? Because couldn't America just, if America wanted to, just annihilate North Korea just like that? So this is. I mean, this comes back to that basic yeah thing at the heart of the book, which is that we can. Cut a deal, or we can fight. Yeah. And my ability to threaten to burn the whole house down is my source of bargaining power. That's the technology. Yes. Technology, America's technology and investment in size means they're the big, they're the big boss, yeah. and so they can say we want the world to run our way in proportion to our power, and our power is the ability to burn the house down. And yeah. so they should never actually have to enact that because they can get most of what they want peacefully. And and if North Korea didn't have nukes and didn't have the ability to harm American interests or their allies, they probably would have an even worse deal in that dog-eat-dog sort of international anarchy that we have. Yes. Uh, and, and that's their incentive to have those nukes yes. is because they cling on because of their ability to cause just enough damage to make the United States happy with the status quo. Yes. My guest, Christopher Blackman. The book is Why We Fight, The Roots of War, and The Paths to Peace. It is a, is it a terrific read. It really is. It's one of those books that, as I said, it just captured me right from the very beginning. Christopher, it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you so very much, and thank you for writing this book. No, thank you for having me. Thank you to my guests, and a very big thank you to you for listening. Make sure you subscribe to Life Elsewhere so you can be up to date on our upcoming shows. Till next time, be well, be safe, and you know it costs nothing. Be nice. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. That was a special presentation of Life Elsewhere with Norman B. If you like the show, you can hear it on WMNF's HD3 channel, The Source, every Sunday at noon. Thanks so much for listening to WMNF Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota. You're listening to WMNF in Tampa.